Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. February 16 is World Read Aloud Day. Every year, this global celebration spotlights the importance of reading aloud and sharing stories by challenging participants to grab a book, find an audience, and read out loud. With us today in the studio are Pam Allen, founder and executive director of Lit World, the organization that created World Read Aloud Day, and Ernest Morell, an education professor at Columbia University, as well as an award-winning author. Ernest and Pam co-authored Every Child a Super Reader. They were our guests on the podcast last year. Later on, we'll talk with the multi-talented Nick Cannon, and finally, our very own Andrea Davis Pinckney will read aloud from her newest book. Pam and Ernest, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Our podcast with you last time was one of the biggest hits of our first year, so it's especially great to have you awesome. back. For starters, what was the inspiration behind World Read Aloud Day? It's a great story. I was in a school, and I was reading aloud to a class, and one of the little boys in the classroom afterwards said to me, Mrs. Allen, I just love that so much. And he said, I wish we could do that every day. So I said, well, why can't we do that every day? Aren't we doing that every day? (laughs) And he said, no, we don't have time. There are too many tests. We don't have enough time. I said to him, I wish we could make a case to everybody why reading aloud is so important and why it really does make a difference. It's not just the thing you do on the side, but it's really good for you. It's going to help you do well on the test. It's going to help you be strong in the world. It's going to help you make friends and be part of a a reading community. And I said, but I just, sometimes I don't know how to express that enough because it's such a big idea and I don't know what to do. So he said to me, I mean, he was about eight years old and he said, well, when it's my birthday, everyone pays a lot of attention to me. And he said, I wonder if we could have a big party for the read aloud. And then maybe people would really start paying attention. So I went back to my office and I told my colleague Dorothy about this. And she and I both kind of had a glimmer in our eye. (laughs) So Dorothy and I enrolled a bunch of interns and some amazing board members like Ernest and just said, what if we had a celebration for the read aloud? So from one little boy, we go to a worldwide celebration. That's remarkable. Could you tell us about some of the ways that this day is celebrated in places around the world? Yeah. So we started, as we said, with just the one seed of an idea. And in those first days, we spread the word in New York City, and we had some amazing teachers in New York City. Ernest spread the news to his students, and people were kind of friends of Lit World were really just spreading the word. And now it's 
millions of people celebrate World Read Aloud Day all over the world. And we get stories and pictures from people. We've had, uh, I got a picture from women in India um, working in the fields and actually putting down their tools and picking up stories that they um, loved, uh, these beautiful fables and tales that, that they had brought with them out to the fields. And they have images that they sent us of themselves just taking their break by reading to each other. We have images of girls in our lit clubs in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, meeting in secret places because it's dangerous to learn how to read in some parts of the world, especially for girls. And with the windows covered, reading to each other the stories that they had written in their writing and their writing celebrations. And we have stories of... um, really beautiful celebrations, intergenerational celebrations of elders reading to younger children and younger children going to nursing homes and reading to the elders. And and Ernest, I'm sure you've also just, you've paid witness to so many of these stories. Maybe there are some I'm not remembering exactly. Well, I was thinking as you were talking, um, you know, when when we, you know, started the lit world, um, you know, there's a lot of focus and there there needs to be on, you know, um, international connections and working in out of school situations. The past few years, I mean, we've continued to expand um, the project globally, but we've also been focusing a lot on America's central cities and classrooms. And so I've noticed over the past four or five years, in addition to the community organizations and the groups that have been celebrating for some years now, the schools are starting to take it on. In the past couple of years, when we've been speaking at the Scholastic Book Summits and other places, and the teachers are saying, what can we do for this World Read Aloud Day? So there's resources on the Lit World website. And so now you have taking read aloud marathons where teachers are reading and then students are celebrating their read alouds. And now the schools are communicating with parents. And so in addition to the big celebrations, you have these little celebrations inside classrooms and homes and parents asking you know, for advice about how to do read alouds with their kids or inviting family members over and having a large read aloud. And so it's it's the big celebrations, but it's also those little victories now where so many classrooms across America and so many homes across America are using this day to kind of solidify their community of readership. You make me think of how all of the authors we've had on the podcast, almost to a one, they say their favorite teacher they recall most vividly having read-alouds in the classroom after lunch or when the kids were sleepy, putting their heads down. And these are memories that they keep with them forever, much the way it happens with parents and children. It's such an important thing to remember, as you said, Pam, with all the testing and the focus on getting through a very extensive and often challenging curriculum to give kids these moments to breathe and to live through their imaginations. Yes. And I think that the power of the human connection in the read aloud is there's someone reading to someone. It's a a gift that is, it's transactive. Mm -hmm. So there's the text, there's the child, there's the adult or child to child or adult to adult. And so the sound of that human voice carrying that text is an incredibly powerful way to convey the power of literacy and the power of the human connection that we have with each other. 
I guess we started with the oral tradition before we had books, so that would make perfect sense. And we know that we're making headway with parents understanding how important reading aloud from birth actually is, and more and more parents are doing that. And once again, you know, there's this urge to quantify, like, why is this valuable? But why is it so valuable? There's a lot of reasons why it's valuable, and we know that children develop an oral vocabulary before they develop a reading vocabulary, and they're able to understand a lot more than they can read in print. So um, when a parent or a caregiver or an older sibling is reading, um, the kid is getting access to different kinds of stories through text that they're not able to access themselves. But they're also having reading modeled for them. Think about the four-year-old, and she's first learning to read, but for Three years of her life, she's had hundreds, if not thousands, of stories read to her. She knows how to hold the book. She knows the story, the beginning, the middle, the end, and all the behaviors around reading. So she's been in a literate community um, far before she's responsible for becoming literate herself. Um, the academic vocabulary that's developed through the read aloud becomes really important too. And so when kids are seeing a word for the first time in their own independent reading, they've heard that word read to them and they've seen it. But I think there was something that Pam said earlier that I think is the most important reason for the read aloud. It's because children want to be like the adults around them that they love. They want to be like their older siblings. What you're saying to them is reading is not just something I assign in class or something that I force you to do while I'm watching TV or doing the dishes that reading is something I love. So what you communicate to them is this identity as a reader, like be like me, be a reader, right? Here I am reading and laughing and enjoying life. And you're communicating that to the kid. And that's what we really want more than all the other academic benefits. It's the joy of reading and it's the identity of a reader. And once you give a child that kind of gift, then it just continues to give. Yeah, And I love, you know, this sort of... Uh, sensation that you're marinating a child in text, in the sound of language, in when a, an adult is reading to a child and comes to like a white space or where you have to turn the page or where there's some interesting punctuation that the adult sort of carries that all it, it over. The, it's sort of marinating the child in that. So to Ernest's point about the academic vocabulary, I think even to take it the next step to about the grammar of literary language or informational text, that when you're reading aloud, you can give the child almost a higher level than the child may be able to manage on his or her own. And you're just putting, it's like money in the bank, you know, you're just kind of pouring that language in. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'll say is that has been exciting for us is the, um, relationship that World Read Aloud Day has to Scholastic, we've been able to look at a lot of research together because Scholastic is looking at the impact of children's literature on children's lives. And Scholastic has created these amazing family reading reports, which really I urge all our listeners to take a look at them because they show the research is very powerful. And one more thing I'll say about that is that uh, last year, maybe it was the year before the American Academy of Pediatrics announced that reading aloud is mandatory, basically. It's like a prescription. Uh -huh. I, in fact, one of our board members is a nurse practitioner, Lauren Blum, and she talks about how she keeps a prescription pad in her office and she writes read aloud on it, and that's what she hands to a parent. And she 
is a great example of someone who sees the relationship between health and literacy and the reading aloud to the child before they can even read on their own mm-hmm. as being a health issue, too. It's going to make them happier, as Ernest said, more joyful. Those are things that when you're happier, you're healthier. And I think that's a big part of the read aloud. Absolutely. Although we do also know from that kids and family reading report that when a child turns five or six, say, and perhaps is reading on his or her own, the read aloud tends to drop off. How can we address that or help convey the message to parents that it still matters very much? I think we need to work together with teachers as partners and developing reading cultures and reading communities. So for me, one of the key ways is how do we have these conversations with teachers of first, second, third graders or sixth graders? Because indirectly through those teachers, we can touch all the parents of the kids in the nation. Why is it important? Or what should you be doing? One of the things is not just to say, read aloud, but make it a game, make it a fun activity. When you read aloud to your fourth grader, ask her this or do this. You know, my oldest son is a junior in high school. We were traveling for Christmas in the car and I began to read the Iliad because he was reading it himself. And it was one of my favorite texts and I was reading it out loud and he understood it more, right? I could inflect the voices and he said, you know what? I read an entire book of the Iliad. He's like, I I totally understand what was going on there. And there's just something about kind of hearing it from someone else. And so we, we, adults should read aloud to each yes, other. Absolutely. But I think the, one of the best ways is to, is, to, is to join ranks with teachers and think about how we can communicate this message to the parents out there. Yeah, I, I think it's true. And I think that idea that when young people start to read independently and we're saying to them, okay, now that's it. Mm-hmm. You'll never be read aloud to again. <laughs> um, I had a little girl in a class once say to me, I'm going to pretend I can't read on my own so that my mom will keep reading to me. And we definitely don't want that, you know? So, but I think that um, this idea of how we read aloud to our older children, making choices, what we choose to read to them, making sure that the choice is varied. So, as you're reading aloud, the Iliad, um, other just thinking about, you know, reading the sports pages or interesting blogs, or you have fourth, fifth and sixth graders really interested in politics. There's a lot of amazing op-ed pieces. My, my father always read aloud to us from the sports pages and I didn't never watch sports, but when I went to school, I always could talk to everybody about (laughs) sports because he would read those pages to me. And he said, you know, these are some of the best writers you'll ever hear. I'm reading this to you, not only because I love sports, but because listen to the way that this guy writes. Just listen. And that, I think, for the older child, again, to the point that Ernest raised about being role models, if we, we stop when they can read on their own, then reading is such an invisible act. The read aloud keeps us visible to our children. So when, you know, my daughters were in upper elementary, I think fourth and fifth grade, and we took a trip to Prince Edward Island and we reread aloud Anne of Green Gables together. And my husband was obviously with us and he was driving and he had never heard it. And it was like our third time. I think I had read it to both of my girl, our girls, and then they read it themselves. And then we were reading it aloud again because that's where it takes place. And I turn and I look at him and he's sobbing because the ending is, if anybody hasn't read it, it's like must. I just thought, what a great example for our daughters that a man could express the emotion because it is a very intense ending to that book. You know, 
that's a really good modeling for them to see him doing that. And I think also just on the other side, the sheer, like, it's the one way that you could still have some way to shape your child's reading life. Because once they start reading independently, you do want them to make forays into other areas. But the way that you are joining into the Iliad or the way my father is bringing me into the sports section or the way that we brought Jim into Anne of Green Gables is still creating that structure and culture around reading. Now, you are the co-authors of Every Child, a Super Reader. You've talked about this on our podcast before, but could you bring up how the read aloud plays a role in achieving this goal of making every child a super reader? The book, Every Child a Super Reader, really builds on Lit World's social-emotional framework. And the way I think about social-emotional is you start affirming the self, and then you build relations with others, and you kind of reach out to the world. So you think about the self, the first two strengths are belonging and curiosity. So the read aloud really has that sense of belonging, and one of the practices we advocate in the book around the belonging strength is the read aloud. So when the parent or caregiver or some other valuable person in this child or growing young adult's life is reading to them, it really creates that sense of belonging. But belonging is also about, well, what is the practice we belong to together? So if it's the read aloud and I'm three or four years old and you ever see a three-year-old read a story to their stuffed animal when they think that no one's looking. And so that's the practice. It's like, well, this is what my older sister does to me. And this is what my dad does to me or my granddad. It's that practice, right? And then also the curiosity. You think about, as Pam was saying, the book in the pocket or on the iPad that uh, read Reading is a place where I go to learn about and connect to the world. It's not an activity that's about proving something to a teacher or passing a test. And one of the findings from the reading research that really brought me into this as an academic career was understanding the difference between how successful readers think about what reading does for them and how readers who have traditionally, we don't like the term, but haven't done so well, think about reading means for them. The struggling readers think about reading as decoding and proving something to an adult, where the strong readers think about reading as joy and engagement and curiosity. So the book, it opens with the, you know, these, these first two strengths as a way of really bringing a child into this community, right? Some of the other strengths are about how does reading help me to establish friendships or make connections with others? How can reading give me courage to be someone who stands up for themselves and stands up for others? But each of those kind of strengths connects a child powerfully to reading as a way that you can make relations with others. Reading is a way for you to be someone who's really strong with big ideas, but it's not about the reading itself. It's about what does being a super reader make possible for me? Relationships with my mom and my granddad, being kind to those who are on the other side of the schoolyard, the other side of the world, and being someone who's going to kind of make the world a very different place. So that concept of empathy, which we know is so important. It is. And I think that was something so big in our thinking around every child a super reader is that intersection or interaction between empathy building and literacy, resilience building and literacy. Empathy is something that I think as parents, we care a lot that our children are growing up to be the kind of people who are going to help others or or are going to just be in the world in a way that feels open and feels open for themselves too. My daughter was with me last week on a Lit World trip and we were working with groups of young people. She said, you know, it's amazing how much joy reading gives to the person themselves, but also how easy it is to pass it around. 
And I think in Every Child, a super reader, we really want to stress that children and young adults and people of all ages want to think of themselves as strong. You don't want to think of yourself as remediated or remedial or somebody with deficits or gaps. And I think our our school system has made a story about so many of our children that they're not enough. They don't do enough. They're not good enough. They're not going to reach enough. They're not going to. And when we, we turned that upside down in the book and we said, instead, we're going to start with what's strong, what's already there. And I think that builds you're you're more able to be more empathetic when you feel strong. And so it does all go together. Wow. That's a really powerful concept, too. Uh, what did you enjoy? You said your dad read the sports columns to you. Are there any other books that you recall your parents reading to you, either one of you, that you really loved? My most vivid memory of my childhood is my mother reading Blueberries for Sal to me. And I talk a lot about this because it's a very visceral memory for me. I must have asked her to read it many, many times. And there was something about her voice when little Sal is putting her blueberries into the pail and she says, kerplank, kerplank, kerplunk. What I love about the memory of it is the sort of emotion, the richness of the sound of her voice with that simple text, how it led to my entire career. And that how could she have known that in that those moments of that sort of patient reading and rereading. She never said, you read this already, or don't do that again. Never. And throughout my childhood, she was always like that. I loved Little Women, and I wanted to read it over and over and over again. So even though Blueberries for Sal was the beginning, it was the theme that went through my childhood was never a sense of judgment that if you read that, that must be too easy for you. Or she had a lot of faith in me as a learner and as a reader. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Ernest? Well, I was thinking of uh, of two books. So one, uh, Where the Wild Things Are, which is one of my favorite, favorite books. And uh, as, as Pam was talking earlier about, you know, the, the white space on the page. So there's this uh, part in Where the Wild Things Are, um, where, you know, they say, let the wild rumpus begin. And there's two or three pages where there are no words, right? There's just the Max and the monsters. And, and so I always like to see parents or others read and say, well, what do you do when you come to those pages? Are you just quiet and you slip by them? So we would make up sounds and dances and kind of march around the room. And, you know, so it was, it was kind of like this celebration, right? It wasn't just that there were, you know, there's words before that and words after that. And, um, but, the, but the wild rumpus, it's just this kind of sheer joy that is only in a kid's mind. But in that moment, you know, your parent who's telling you to clean your room and all the other things becomes a kid with you. And you cannot read where the wild things are to a kid without becoming a kid again, because it's the wild rumpus. And now I see my oldest son reading it to my youngest son, the way I would read it to him. And you know, where the when let the wild rumpus begin, you have to get up off the bed or, you know, get away from the table and you just have to run around and it's just sheer joy. The other is uh, Dr. Seuss, just the rhyme, the the fun with language. And um, so we used to rap Dr. Seuss when I got older and we would put on synthesizer beats and like do green eggs and ham or, you know, you do one fish, two fish, but it's just the, um, there's a story inside of Dr. Seuss, but the, the story isn't the purpose. It's the journey. And the journey is through language. 
And again, just try reading Dr. Seuss without getting a smile on your face, right? You, you cannot do it. And so both of those authors just have a way of like communicating the, the joy of literature um, through the reading of it. So um, it's obviously, you know, you know, what happens, you know, that, you know, uh, in, in, in each of those stories, but it's, we're going to take this journey again together. And we're going to forget the rest of the world. Um, we're going to be silly and we're going to be loud and we're going to have fun. And so that's what I remember. I remember, you know, watching your grandma giggle out loud, you know, because she can't, you know, handle the tongue twisters of Dr. Seuss or something like that. Um, but that's, that, those are really special memories. That's, you know, more than 40 years in the past. But, but, but to the point of this, like the, what else can you remember that vividly from that point in your life? You know, other than these stories that you share with the people you love. And I like the point you're making, too, about the reading pages that have no words. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do often do parent workshops where parents will come to me at the end and say, I'm not a strong reader, but I hear what you're saying and I see how important it is and I really want to do it. But I'm not that comfortable. And I'm we're really encouraging this idea that You can read through the pictures. You can invite your child to be part of that reading experience. Let them decide how that page is going to go. I'm sure Maury Sendak had an idea of how he wanted it to go, but he was also leaving it up to you to, like, jump or do. And I I think that's important for us to share with parents and teachers, too, that the books with fewer words also carry a lot of meaning, um, and, and, and one more thing I'll say about memory, too, is that when a child is grappling with big ideas, I think that when I think about my own daughters and reading to them from books that seemed simple, like Goodnight Moon um, or Clifford, the Big Red Dog, those are very simple on the surface. But what's genius about those books is that they are conveying big themes. So Goodnight Moon is a lot about separation and loneliness and how you go to bed. You know, these are things that a four-year-old is thinking a lot about. Or in Clifford, it's a lot about size. Like I'm growing and I'm awkward. You know, I feel really weird. Like, why don't I fit in this house? Like, it seems silly to us, but the reason those books have become legend is because the children understand that they're talking about something bigger. And I think in a read aloud experience, you can, instead of, you know, what the answer is, you could say, I wonder what you're thinking when you're reading this book with me, or I wonder what's on your mind. Or, you know, I was reading to a class, uh, um, a book about, it was about a little rabbit going on a sleepover and the children wanted to talk about how sometimes that's really frightening and they don't feel so comfortable sleeping in another person's bed or on the floor in a sleeping bag. And that makes them anxious. And those are things that you just wouldn't get if you weren't doing a, a read aloud. These are great. Wow, you're setting the bar high for read alouds. <laughs> it's a little bit daunting. In terms of older kids, when children are five, six, seven, eight, nine, even tweens. Are there any books that you recommend now to educators and parents, maybe besides the Iliad or in addition to the Iliad? I think the series books, you know, depending on which ones, you know, obviously Harry Potter is very famous, but uh, my wife read Harry Potter to each of my older two sons. Um, You just kind of read them a chapter at a time. Um, I think some of the classics, uh, books that the that a child might not necessarily read on their own. Um, Tom Sawyer, I read uh, Moby Dick each summer to my boys. 
and it's just, I mean, there are these wonderful stories. Uh, I think that um, with the older kids, it's about a continuous experience. So it's something we have to come back to. Um, I like those stories that don't just finish in a night. When you finish it, it really is an epic journey. You know, try reading one of those chapter books, a chapter at a time, and it's, there's eight of them in the series, and it takes you a whole year. And by the time you finish that, you have something together. Um, so my wife and my sons have Harry Potter together. And, and, and it's like Harry Potter trivia. Like, and when my <laughs> five-year-old son is probably eight or nine, they'll start into it, and it'll take a few years for them to do that. So uh, have something ambitious, I think, as the kids get older, um, and not just the books that you can finish in one sitting. I love that. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that because, like you said, your wife and your sons now have this shared experience that they'll remember forever and talk about forever, too. Um, I think also for our kids, the um, reading from a variety of different genres, so reading nonfiction, um, there's some amazing um, nonfiction series and writers, um, so many of them. I mean, my favorite probably of all time are maybe Seymour Simon and Jean Craighead George, I think are two pretty seminal authors. Um, I think that there are some amazing new picture book, newer picture book uh, writers who are doing very unusual things with the picture book genre, like Dan Santat and Jason Reynolds. Um, there's an amazing series by John Lewis, our congressman John Lewis, um, about his life that's told through picture books. Um, I think that, you know, Kwame Alexander mm -hmm. is totally brilliant. And he is a, a really good one because to follow because he's writing picture books, but he's also writing chapter books. So as your kids are getting older, you can continue reading aloud from the same author. And more than ever, authors are doing that. Mm -hmm. I think that someone like Jackie Woodson is another example of someone who also does that. She's written beautiful picture books that are very significant, important books for our time and have our children wanting to talk about issues of civil rights and of friendship and of equity and equality. And then she's also written a memoir in young adult novels so that as your child is growing, you could keep on with Jackie Woodson. And the other thing, too, is it's kind of like a, a game you can play with your kids, but you can read something and then say, how could this connect to that? So, for example, um, Langston Hughes, there's a beautiful collection of his poetry um, that I love. It's called Poetry for Young People. It's a series that I really like, and it has really beautiful pictures in it. So it's nice for kids who aren't that used to poetry. But then after that, uh, you could go to, there's another picture book called My People that's a book of photographs, and it's just his poem told across a picture book. And then you could go to actually a more sophisticated collection of the Langston Hughes books. And even from there, you could read a little bit historically of the time he lived in Harlem and what that was like. And, and then who was he friends with? And then there's all these really cool picture books about some of the jazz musicians that he was friends with. So you could kind of take one small thing and just sort of let it, let it lead you. You know, storytelling is how culture happens, and it's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. And so there's so much noise in the world today, and I think of, like, what's core, and then what are the concentric circles outside of that? Um, having reading be at the core of your 
relationships with those that you love is 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 a valuable invaluable gift so it's as you say it's not about like insecurity about reading or what your own experience was like in school it's really about what do i want to be at the core like how do i want to share story with these children um classrooms need to have that at the core community centers need to have that at the core Homes need to have that at the core. And when we, when we put that at the core, then everything else will start to fall into place, right? The kids will see that reading is valuable. They'll learn to love themselves. They'll be able to understand one another. You know, they'll have the courage of their convictions. But it's, it's what we put at the center that shows what we value as a society. And quiet time to have the ecstatic joy of a text with a child needs to be at the core of American culture. Amen. Expressed so beautifully. Thank you both very much for being here. We really love talking with you. Thank you for Thanks having for us. Thanks for having us. Nick Cannon wears many hats. You may know him as an actor, a comedian, a rapper, a poet, or a dad. Today, he's joining us by phone to share his thoughts about why reading aloud is so important to him. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, as you know, we're celebrating the power of the read aloud. And you, of course, are more familiar than many people with the power of words, especially the spoken word. Can you tell us how you got your start as a word man? I would have to say I got started as someone who loves reading and writing and specifically poetry is when I was about eight years old and uh, just being a fan of authors like Shel Silverstein and rhythm. I mean, even going all the way back to Dr. Seuss, I just always loved poetry and felt like I had the ability to create in that way. So I just started writing at like the age of eight and fell in love with it from there. Did you like to read aloud even then? Well, yeah. I mean, that was the cool thing about those type of books, sharing it and reading it and, and performing it. I mean, I think that even became my knack as a performer, maybe even a rapper, just knowing all the words, the green eggs and ham and uh, <laughs> one fish, two fish, or even, you know, some of the more famous show Silverstein poems from Where the Sidewalk Ends or even The Given Tree. If I remember correctly, you read a lot to your family members. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, having the ability to read is something that me and my family always took pride in. So to be able to share and read aloud, family time, after dinner, like all of that uh, stuff was really special for us. And now you have two children of your own. Do you read aloud to them? I definitely read aloud to my children, carrying on the tradition, but more importantly, them knowing the power of reading and they're five years old right now, but uh, they've been in love with books since day one. I mean, surrounding them with books and teaching them how to read and watching them take pride in being able to read a book on their own and reading it aloud to everyone. Like, uh, it, it's always been something that uh, we move forward. They must get such a kick out of hearing dad read and taking on all different voices. I can just imagine. <laughs> Oh, I like to have a lot of fun and become the characters. And they're calling me silly daddy at this point. Before they used to really like enjoy me. Now they're like, they think I'm silly and crazy when I do all of the characters. Let's hope that they keep that impression of you as they get older. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's very sweet. And what about you? What absolutely. do you cherish about those moments with them? I believe it does a, 
quite a few things in those moments to not only you're showing them the the power of communication and reading and understanding that this is something that they'll take with them for the rest of their lives that allow them to excel. But more importantly, it just creates a valuable family time and memories that you won't forget. I mean, whether it's bedtime stories or reading their favorite book with them or listening to them read for the first time and them sharing ideas like, you know, you got to cherish those moments because, you know, as they get older, they stop maybe wanting to to hang out (laughs) and and have bedtime stories with dad. Now you have a boy and a girl, so they might have different tastes, but I wondered if there are any particular books that they especially enjoy. It definitely varies. They like a lot of the interactive books. The ones that they're currently reading, I mean, my son actually really likes my poetry book, Neon Alien, Ate My Homework. So that's kind of been his new thing because he knows that dad wrote it. But then there's also classic books that we have in the house that my daughter likes. I think The Snowy Day. And I think there's an amazing Grace book that she really likes that even recites the the words to the famous song. It's a it's just stuff like that. Just watching them pick up their own favorite kind of you know what you watch what they're drawn to from their personality. It's actually really cool. I love the poem Daddy's Shoes. Would you mind reading that for us? Oh sure. Daddy's shoes. One day I tried on Daddy's shoes. They were warm and warm with lots of use. Heavy, they dragged with years of weight. His ordered steps revealed by his inevitable fate. The path he cleared, the trail he blazed. His feet of bronze and silver tongue controlled the gold he paved. Streets were hard, yet he ran for days. Navigated his way through the worldly maze. Daddy's shoes. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so very much for talking with us today, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. You just heard Nick mention that his daughter Ro loves the snowy day. Here's someone else who loves that book, Andrea Davis Pinckney. Please welcome her. Hi, I'm Andrea Davis Pinckney, and I'm the author of. A Poem for Peter, a picture book biography about none other than Ezra Jack Keats, the creator of the classic children's book, The Snowy Day. But A Poem for Peter is more than just a biography. It's an ode, a love letter, a spoken word lyric to Peter, the character in The Snowy Day and the first African-American child featured in a mainstream book. I hope you like what you're about to hear. Brown sugar boy in a blanket of white, bright as the day you came onto the page from the hand of a man who saw you for you. Long before you arrived, little brown sugar child, he was born, came to this world in the middle of March, that time between a lion and a lamb. Yes, yes, he was born with a roar that would someday celebrate the making of a brown sugar boy on a snowy day. You and he, different but the same in so many ways. This wriggly baby was the youngest of three. First came Sister May, a feisty girl. Then Brother Willie, a quiet dreamer. Then came he, Jacob 
Jack Ezra Katz, born under hardship's hand into a land filled with impossible odds. But when it snowed, oh, when it snowed, nature's glittery hand painted the world's walls a brighter shade. Snow made opportunity and equality seem right around the corner. Because, you see, snow is nature's we-all blanket. When snow spreads her sheet, we all glisten. When snow paints the streets, we all see her beauty. Snow doesn't know who's needy or dirty or greedy or nice. Snow doesn't choose where to fall. Snow doesn't pick a wealthy man's doorstep over a poor lady's stoop. That's snow's magic. As a third grader at PS 182, Ezra earned 25 cents for painting store signs. His hand so steady, ready to show what he could do with a brush dipped in gold, spelling, spiraling, inviting shoppers to buy, pig's feet and sauerkraut, 25 cents, pancakes and sausages, 15 cents. Yes, Ezra wanted to be a true artist, true as in the real thing, true as in letting imagination fly, true as in someone who does more than paint sauerkraut signs. And soon Ezra let his imagination grow, and he drew, oh, how he drew, on paper bags and wood scraps and box tops and pillowcases and open palms and foot soles. This led him closer to you. And then, when Ezra was grown, an invitation came to write and illustrate his own story. And then, oh then, you, you popped up, you, Ezra's true jubilation. You had been waiting to be born, and yet you were there all along. Brown sugar boy in a blanket of white, bright as the day you came onto the page from the hand of this man whose life and times and hardships and heritage and heroes and heart and soul led him to you. Yes, you, little boy, were now in full view. Peter, no longer a glint in Ezra's eye. Peter, a curious child on a path to discovery. Like a snowflake you fell right into our hearts. You arrived, a little snowy day surprise. Like a crystal flake you fell from the clouds. You fluttered down with your own one-of-a-kind cutie beauty. Yes, you, Peter Child, bubbled up in this man, now free to discover the truth of your colors, the here I am red, the look at me yellow, the proud to be brown. Peter and Ezra, you made a great team. Together you brought a snowstorm of dreams, a blizzard of imagination, flurries of fun. Ezra Jack Keats gave us all a place, a face, a voice. Ezra Jack Keats gave us eyes to see. Let us celebrate the making of what it means to be. He dared to open a door. He awakened a wonderland. He brought a world of white suddenly alive with color. Brown sugar child, when you and your hue burst onto the scene, all of us came out to play, together flapping our wings, rejoicing in a we-all blanket. Thanks to Ezra Jack Keats, we all can be as bright as snow's everlasting wonder. Thanks again to our guests who spoke with us about World Read Aloud Day. 
And thank you for joining us. I hope that we've encouraged you to pick up a book and read out loud. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to Scholastic Reads in iTunes. That'll help more book lovers find us.